Good evening, Clarice. I thought you might like your podcast back, Doctor. Just until you get your view. How very thoughtful. Your anagrams are showing, Doctor. Downplaying co-ops. Now playing podcasts in the movie review show. Oh, Clarice, your problem is you need to get more fun out of life. You were telling me about this podcast back in Baltimore, sir. Please continue now. Well, I've gone to their website now, playingpodcast.com. Have you? Everything you need to know is there in those pages. Then tell me how. First, principles, Clarice. Simplicity. Stuart, Arnie, and Jacob. What is their nature? What do they do, these podcast hosts you seek? They review movies. No, that is incidental. They watch all movies in the Hannibal Lecter series from 1986's Manhunter through the prequel Hannibal Rising. They review one movie each week. That is their nature. And how do they do these reviews, Clarice? Make an effort to answer now. They just... No. They review with in-depth analysis, including detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. Don't you hear the coming spoilers, Clarice? All right, yes. Now please tell me how. No. It is time to listen to the show, Clarice. Doctor, we don't have any more time for any of this now. No. I will listen now. Today we're discussing Silence of the Lambs, starring Jodie Foster, Anthony Hopkins, Scott Glenn, and Ted Levine, directed by Jonathan Demme. I'm Arnie, co-host of Now Playing. (laughs) Stuart in L.A. And this is Jacob. And we are back with the second Hannibal Lecter film. But come on, did anybody know this was a sequel when it came out? I sure as hell didn't. Is it a sequel? I gotta say, clearly Silence of the Lambs, the book, which I reviewed now over at Books and Nachos, you can check it out now, is a direct sequel to Red Dragon. There are tie-over characters and, and connections that aren't even in these movies that are in the books. You can hear all about it. It's clear that this is the continuing adventures of Lecter on the page. But Silence of the Lambs, the movie, I feel like Manhunter was A, not a hit, and B, they've changed everything so much about the creative people involved that it really doesn't feel like the same movie. I feel like this is a standalone effort. I think the filmmakers would be fine if you had never heard of Manhunter. I'm going to guess most people that have seen Silence of the Lambs never saw Manhunter, and they're able to follow along quite fine. First time I saw Silence of the Lambs, I hadn't even heard of Manhunter. I didn't even imagine there could be a prequel to this. So whether or not this is a direct sequel to Manhunter, that film, it doesn't matter. It holds up on its own. Here's the funniest part is, Stuart, last time you were talking about Dino De Laurentiis with Manhunter, Manhunter was such a bomb, he gave the rights to Lecter to Orion. Oh, it's got <laughs> him don't you know this is this is his baby now dino de laurentis he's made movies for decades and and he just uh, maybe not great movies most of them were b but he's always been on the scene and this is probably the franchise he will go down being remembered for it he made every single one except silence of the lambs (laughs) (laughs) oops 
you kind of want your name on this one, I think. But hey, yeah, that's painful, huh? He didn't know. Yeah, it, Manhunter lost him money, and he said, okay, Orion, you take it. And maybe that's why it's the good film it is. Truth be told, the project bounced around for a while. It, because it was a sequel to something nobody wanted to make a sequel to, no one was quite sure what to do with it. it the book was well-loved and received, and its commercial aspects were widely believed to be there, but who was going to make it and how? And there was no obvious choice for who would play Lecter or who would direct this film. And I don't think the people that they got, with the exception of maybe Foster, would have been people that you would have naturally assumed if you read the book. I mean, in alternate worlds, it was a whole lot of other things. I mean, Gene Hackman? actually bought the rights. He wanted to make it as his directorial debut, and it was not clear whether he wanted to play Lecter or Crawford or not be in it at all, but this was going to be a Gene Hackman project. I read Jack Nicholson as Lecter, which I would have loved. <laughs> <laughs> that would make sense, for sure. I definitely feel like that would be in an alternate universe, a movie I'd like to want to go see is his. I mean, some of them made sense. Robert De Niro, it's like, well, maybe that works. Jeremy Irons, sure. Even Patrick Stewart, I'm kind of like, well, it's the bald Lecter. I- I'll go with it. But some of the choices I heard, I was like, Sean Connery, Louis Gossett Jr., <laughs> Christopher Lloyd! Oh, is that for real? For real! Wow, wow. (laughs) No, that makes no damn sense. I mean, Christopher Lloyd and Melanie Griffith? I mean, I don't care how good this story is. This would have been the Razzie of the year. It would have literally (laughs) gone from being the Oscar winner to the worst picture of the year. Yeah, but who the fuck was Anthony Hopkins at this point? I hadn't heard of him. He was the guy who always got confused with Ian Holm and John Hurt and Alan Reed and all the other English Shakespeare Brit guys. Uh, His one claim to fame that I knew him from very distinctly was Elephant Man. That was a movie I saw a lot as a kid, and I always remember him for that. And indeed, that's how he wound up with the part. Jimmy admitted that when he was casting, that was the tipping point, was Hopkins' performance in The Elephant Man. So this is the film that made him? I I was wondering, I was with you, Arnie, this is the first film I remember seeing him in, and it really seems that this is the film that built his career. Is, is that true? Yeah. This is where he came out of... Because the dude's old to be just getting known. <laughs> a, a, a couple years before this, he was doing Hallmark Hall of Fame. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he was in a movie that he shot just prior to stepping into this role. He was in a hostage thriller playing a victim. Like, never again would Anthony Hopkins be thought of as the person that gets attacked and kidnapped. I mean, from this point on, yeah, it's a game changer. Not only is he a star, but an icon. Like, a a menace. Like, yeah, a middle-aged, short British guy is suddenly some weird pop culture hero for darkness and evil. It's a total transformation, and the only comparative I can think about it is like Morgan Freeman or Samuel Jackson, of people that really they don't hit until middle age. By the same token, I didn't really know Jonathan Demi, and honestly, to this day, I haven't seen much more of his work. I think this Philadelphia and Manchurian Candidate are it. Jonathan Demi is not the obvious choice here. You're absolutely right. He was mostly known in the 80s for quirky comedies and Married to the Mob. Oh, uh, I saw that. I didn't know that was him. Something Wild, Swing Shift. He is great comic instincts. I I actually enjoy those pictures, but he isn't who you'd give a horror movie to. Or even, I know, this is not horror, Arnie. A police (laughs) procedural. He is not someone that is dark. Now, after this point, it's it's a different thing for him. But up to this, I would say he's the guy you go to with your nutty 80s comedy. He's 
in no way the person you would hire for Silence of the Lambs. These are counterintuitive choices that are landing here, but that's the magic of Hollywood is that you can just take people unproven, untested, and if they come together, they can create something that transforms the way we see them. And this is clearly a case where everyone involved went from zero to a hundred, became a megastar. You know, I, I think this is a movie that helped absolutely everyone. Well, Jodie Foster already had her Oscar. Sure, but I w- wouldn't say that she was a star yet. She was a respected actress. The Accused was a notable film, but I don't think that she necessarily would carry a film. She wasn't really working. I mean, quite frankly, she was most known for being the woman that inspired Hinckley to shoot Reagan. I mean, <laughs> I think everyone knew she had talent. I don't think it necessarily meant they wanted to cast her as their leading lady. She wasn't a star. I mean, the other people that they looked at this, the first choice was Michelle Pfeiffer. And another big contender was Meg Ryan. I mean, like, you talk about wanting to fuck this up. Why not get Tom Hanks? It can be another (laughs) Sleepless in Seattle. When are they going to get together? Break down the glass and run off. No, none of these people, I would say, were the obvious intuitive choice to play these parts, to be a part of this series. And I, I do think part of it is the fact that Orion was an independent film company. It wasn't one of the majors, and they didn't have the network of major stars or frankly, the money to do this. They were about broke, and it's kind of a sad story that they put out Dance with the Wolves in 1990 and Silence of the Lamb in 1991 and then promptly went bankrupt. I don't know how you put two major motion pictures that win awards and make tons of money and then go belly up, but that's exactly what happened. They were too artist-friendly. But they were also making Drek like RoboCop 3. Well, and RoboCop and and Woody Allen movies. I mean, they catered to directors and artists. I would actually say that they allowed the kind of freedom that major studios aren't always so willing to do. And in this case, it was the freedom to hire a quirky comedy guy like Demi and put uh, never has been like Hopkins in a pivotal role and Jodie Foster coming off her Oscar. And it's dynamite. Really, we're really dealing with one of my favorite movies now. Well, then, why don't you give us the plot summary? Will do. FBI trainee Clary Starling gets a lot of looks, not only because she's an attractive woman in a male-dominated field, but also for a work ethic that's put her at the top of her class. Jack Crawford decides to let his pupil play with the big boys for a week and assigns Starling the task of interviewing incarcerated serial killer Dr. Hannibal Lecter. Crawford's betting that Clarice can seduce the psychotic psychiatrist into telling them all he knows about an elusive murderer who's abducting and skinning overweight women throughout the East Coast. Lecter teases out that he met the so-named Buffalo Bill back when he was just the fledgling killer of one of Hannibal's patients. Lecter's willing to trade insights and recollections with the Comely trainee, but in exchange, he wants a transfer away from Baltimore and his smug jailer, Dr. Frederick Chilton. And he makes Clarice divulge painful childhood memories as he dispenses his coded clues. A sixth body turns up in the West Virginia River, and Catherine Martin, the daughter of a Tennessee junior senator, goes missing. Crawford knows he's only got three days to find this woman before she's shot and skinned like the others. So he and Clarice cook up a phony deal that Lecter falls for. Clarice discovers that the killer is placing cocoons of a rare moth in each victim's throat, and Lecter identifies this as a symbol of transformation, and he expands upon his knowledge of Buffalo Bill's failed transsexualism in a quid pro quo with Clarice as she relives the death of her father and an incident on a sheep farm that drives her to be the FBI agent she is today. Chilton, jealous of Lecter's time with a pretty girl that jilted him, 
tells his captive that Crawford's deal is a fake. Lecter goes silent and won't help the authorities rescue Catherine Martin unless he's flown to Memphis to meet with the abductee's mother face to face. But really, this is all a ruse so that Hannibal can break out of jail. We'll get into the gruesome details of Escape later, but basically involves him carving off a face and impersonating a wounded security guard and then slipping out of the ambulance. Clarice stays focused and used profiling tools Lecter taught her to conclude that Buffalo Bill lived near first victim Frederica Bimmel in Belvedere, Ohio. She searches Frederica's room and finds further evidence to support the conclusion that Bill is using the victim's flesh to create a woman's suit that transforms his body into something beautiful in his sick mind, like a moth from a cocoon. Crawford gets a tip from a sexual surgery clinic that the man they're looking for is James Gum, and he stages a raid at James' house outside Chicago. Too bad Gum moved to an old seamstress's place in Belvedere two years ago, and it's Clarice who stumbles into his lair and shoots the predator dead before he's had a chance to carve up Catherine Martin. Clarice gets a phone call from Lecter at her graduation party, promising that he will not pursue her. The hungry cannibal then hangs up to make dinner plans with his nemesis, Chilton, seen vacationing on an anonymous island as credits roll. Was he vacationing or had he gone into hiding, Chilton? I took it as he'd gone into hiding because there's a dropped line about security. Yeah. Yes, it's not clear. And if you were to go from the book, he does ask the FBI for protection, but it ends with that. There's no scene of him actually being stalked. Well, what I find interesting is that basically when we were watching Manhunter, I was noticing all over the place, it's the same formula. (laughs) It's almost the same movie. (laughs) Like, I couldn't believe some of the similarities going on in this film as... Manhunter, and I guess I have to listen to Books and Nachos because I'm really curious. Did Harris just change the names and put out the same book again? <laughs> You're not exactly wrong. I mean, there are too many similarities with the way that, yes, Lecter is again a caged figure that is dispensing advice to an FBI agent who is really trying to track another serial killer. And I feel like the difference really, particularly in the book, is the focus of Red Dragon is on Red Dragon. And I feel like Lecter and Will Graham in that movie kind of take a back seat to Red Dragon once it gets going. Now, in the movie, I would say it's a little bit more back and forth with Graham and Dragon. But yes, here, the major difference is, is A, the FBI agent is a female, and B, everyone gets their screen time. I feel like everyone gets a chance to have more a greater impact on the story arc. Whereas Lecter, last time, I do remember a lot of kvetching about how he doesn't really do that much. Yeah, I feel like if we were to equate Harris to a chef, the first time he kind of cooked the potatoes, but the second time he got the ingredients in the right mix. Yeah, he made the same meal. There's, a, It's undeniably the same meal with a lot of the same ingredients. I don't think that it, it tastes the same at all. Well, for one, as simple a move as it is, change the gender of the main character, I think it's everything. I think that's half the movie right there is suddenly we're in a far more interesting dynamic. We're in this world where this trainee is having to prove herself because she's in a boys club and, and no one respects her and nobody thinks that she's 
you know, going to make it. But it's her insights as a woman that allows her to project herself into the victims. She can see things that the men cannot see, like glitter nail polish. And she just can intuit things about these victims men cannot. And as such, she can protect them. She's the one to figure it out when the men drop the ball. I think it's just a far more effective story with more tension in the story when you make the central character Clarice and not Will Graham. I'm going to agree with you, Stuart. I like that it's a female protagonist here, a female hero. Even today, it's not something you get a whole lot. In in 91, it was even more rare. I mean, up until that time, I think of Sigourney Weaver and the Alien films. Sure. And a few years after this, Goldeneye would come out, and that was a big change to the James Bond franchise where M became a woman, and that was a big uproar. I mean, this was just at the beginning of the feminism becoming more mainstream in the 90s, and and I feel that's the benefit here because – I mean, we have a serial killer that's obsessed with transformation. We talked about, do you see? Do you see? There's a whole thing about seeing. You covet because you see something. Like, if I didn't know that there was two separate books here, I could almost believe that this was a remake of Manhunter. (laughs) But that female role, that female protagonist, is what really makes this film stand out, having Clarice instead of Will. And it's such a major point of the film. I mean, right when you start watching this movie, one of the very first scenes is her on an elevator where she's a good foot shorter than all the guys. And guys, she's the only woman there. And, of course, they have her dressed differently. It's just a one of these things is not like the other situation. The movie's well aware of what it does. It's not a happy accident here. But I do think it adds so much to the why. And it also adds a lot of vulnerability. I mean, we never really felt like Graham was in any danger. They put his family in danger, but he was the strong FBI guy. He was safe the whole time. Whereas here, Jodie Foster, being a woman, I mean, that makes her more vulnerable. For right or wrong, it's how the audience will take it. Yeah, the audience is going to perceive the gender difference very differently. And it's just, yeah, it's part of culture. You're right, wrongly or or rightly. I'm also going to advocate Jodie Foster is just obviously a much more compelling screen presence than Will Peterson. All right, here we go. I'm going to say something a little controversial. I don't like Jodie Foster. I've never liked anything she's ever done. She is an actress who I believe can completely be fine but she is so one note. And in this movie, she's playing Jodie Foster. And in The Accused, she's playing Jodie Foster after Jodie Foster's been raped. And in Freaky Friday, she's playing Jodie Foster with her mother in her body. But uh, you say that like that's a bad thing. I, I think this is a Jodie Foster part. I think that this, more than Michelle Pfeiffer or any of the other actresses up for it, she's right for this. The character fits how we think of her. You're right. As someone strong and independent and not romantically inclined, a work-driven personality who can compete with the men around her. This is right up her alley. I agree with that. I'm just saying that of all the Oscars this film won, hers feels the least deserved. She's just doing what she always does. Yeah, but it works for this role. And sometimes it's not about your skill as an actor, but being put into the right role. And for me, I'm not going to compare this to Freaky Friday, though I (laughs) did go back to Freaky Friday. It works here for me. I'll agree with you, Jacob. She's this film's Marissa Tomei. 
I think you are vastly underrating what an important part that Jodie Foster brings to this. Whatever you feel about her other movies, and I'm not here to defend them, I do feel like much of her letter work actually suffers in comparison to this film. But here in this moment now, she's the perfect Cleary Starling. And we trust her without really knowing her. At this point in the game, other than the accused and taxi driver, and you guys freaky frying this <laughs> i really don't feel like she's an actress that most people watching the movie would know and yet instantly we believe that she can do the job she's selling us on this she's not the biggest star in the block but she's telling us right from the get-go she doesn't take any guff and she can stare down a killer and show empathy i mean i think the vulnerability that she's able to show with this character in her quid pro quo being able to turn those flashbacks and scenes of self-revelation and explaining who she is to a man that would like to, at, at least at one point, eat her face off, I don't think that's easy to do, and I think she completely sells it. I think she's the key to the movie, and I can't imagine anyone else in this part. Yeah, if this was Michelle Pfeiffer or Meg Ryan, automatically, just that meta-knowledge of who they are, I would have been disconnected from this film. Because Foster, she does have that colder more straightforward appearance and, and maybe she plays that in every movie it works here and i buy it that she's this lone woman trying to get into the old boys club fbi and trying to make a name for herself that she's able to win over lecter i mean she's more of a tomboy i mean michelle pfeiffer always is playing pretty and even when michelle pfeiffer tries to be one of us and play a diner waitress or something like that it's always ridiculous right i mean <laughs> meg ryan does not pass as earthy. These people don't work, but we can believe that Jodie Foster gets in and gets her nails dirty and gets in the trenches. I mean, she is a workman. You know, we know that she has no glamour about this. And that's what you most need. Someone that you can't take your eyes off of who doesn't care whether you're looking at her or not. See, I can take my eyes off of her in this film. I agree with you that she's selling certain points, but at no point is she captivating in this, in my opinion. Oh my god. She's fine. That's the best I can give her is fine. And the scenes that focus on her, I don't care for. And I guess as we get in the movie, I can continue to make the case for Jodie Foster. I didn't think I'd have to make that case. I thought it was pretty evident. But all right, I hear what you're saying. And, and I think maybe even in other movies, I feel like Jodie Foster tends to be, I don't know, a little self-righteous in some of her worst movies. <laughs> I think all of those qualities that work against her in something like Nell or The Brave One, I think it doesn't matter when you're in something like this. It just doesn't matter. It, this is playing to her strength, and it's material that's as good as she is. Uh, let me ask you this. We're glad that it's Clarice and not Will Graham again, right? You can say that you're following her a lot more than you were with William Peterson and Manhunt. Absolutely. I mean, there's so much more that they do right for the character. First of all, it's a trainee immediately vulnerable second of all it's a female again as i've already said vulnerable what the movie only leaves kind of implicit though is why her she's only in the top 25 percent of her class she's not a full agent it's implied that her boss crawford wants he's got a boner for her yeah come on yeah let's just get to we'll get to the subtext you're right there are things that are said and then there are things that are left unsaid and what's unsaid but evident on the screen is that not just her boss every man on this screen is checking her out when she walks by they are looking her up and down they are coveting her they are objectifying her and which is where michelle pfeiffer would have actually been better in the role but I wouldn't have bought her as an FBI agent. Yes, I could... but you have bought her holding the gun. Jodie Foster is attractive enough 
where I could buy her as a smart FBI agent, and yet still attractive. I'd be willing to do her. Yeah, no, she's got the right balance. You're forgetting it takes two things. She has to be attractive in a conventional feminine way, and yet she has to be one of the boys. She has to play by their rules and be a chameleon in their world. Jody does both. So that's why she gets this gig is because... Crawford's betting that Lecter, who has not seen a woman in eight years, it's pointed out in the book. I don't think it's said in the movie, but it's there's something they, they said. reference yeah. it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the interesting things that it's more in the books than in the, in the movie, and I always have to remind myself of this: is Lecter preyed upon women. We don't get that from this movie because everyone that he attacks is a man, and all of his aggression is directed at other men. He actually has the most compassion for Clarice, but he is a woman killer, just like. Buffalo Bill is. And so, yeah, they're dangling her on a hook. She fits the profile of someone that he would kill. And I think that would have been helpful to bring into the story to cause even more attention. Yeah, he's a serial killer. But if I would have known that, that he preyed upon women and that would have added a lot to their relationship. We only get it in one little passing moment. Chilton, as he's guiding her down into the basement, flashes a photograph we don't even see of a misstep when they were moving Lecter around and a nurse leaned over and he took advantage of, of that situation. And yeah, but I didn't take that as an attack on a woman. It was an attack on – it was an opportunity yes. <laughs> that where he could attack someone. It yeah. wasn't because she was female. That's at least the way I took it. I took it the same way. Would he have done it with Barney? I don't know. It's, it's hard to say. <laughs> But yes, it's much more clear in the book, and it, it does change things when you realize that about Lecter. It does make it more understandable why he can't resist her instantly. Well, let's talk about Lecter. And I think part of the reason why I'm kind of cold on Jodie Foster in this is because we have Anthony Hopkins here, who is like the son. <laughs> it doesn't would anyone compare to him in this film that's I mean, the it, problem is i mean in any other movie with any other cast jodie foster might be the standout but compared to anthony hopkins and we'll talk later about ted levine jodie foster it has the unenviable straight role right and hopkins in this movie i haven't seen this movie in 10 years i watched it a lot in the 90s but i just haven't gone back to it until this review and i remembered thinking he was great but his every word that he drops is gold oh come on what about brian cox who <laughs> <laughs> i know what can you even i mean it's everything right these introductory scenes to how we meet lecter says everything about the difference of the performance and, and how we're even to understand lecter is okay manhunter they shoot it in an art museum everything's white and sterile and nobody has any expression on their face at all and here it's like going into a haunted house there's all these big weird noises and these bars and this dungeon feel like the brick the dim lights all of that and then when you get the lecter and there's just glass it's not bars it's glass that sometimes looks like nothing's there at all and he could come racing right up at you and i love that he's standing there like he's expecting her like he ordered mm -hmm. her well, he's figured it all out. One of the things that I caught, this is the first time on, on this viewing that I caught, but Lecter has an amazing drop right from this introduction. He tells you, A, I know why you're here, and I'm going to tell you where you need to go, and B, I'm going to tell you where I'm going to go when I get out of here. And it's just in a passing dialogue. Do you notice that he's drawn these things from Florence, and he engages her about 
Florence, have you been to Italy? And he refers to something that he calls the Duomo scene from the Belvedere. Do you guys remember? It's just a passing exchange. That's the city they're in in the end. Yes, exactly. Lecter just told her, you need to go to Belvedere. This painting that he's drawn that he's chosen to have displayed sitting right next to him is a drawing taken from a fort called Belvedere in Florence, and it is of the cathedral. I mean, that, that that's in the Denzel, but it's the Belvedere line. It's, it's part of his games. He's playing games from the word go. From the minute she walks up, he is ten steps ahead of her. Not only that, but when we get next week to Hannibal, guess what we're going to find him? Florence. See, I figured we'd find him there in Red Dragon at the prequel. Maybe even Hannibal Rising. I kind of figured that's where this would come up. Well, we'll get there when we get there. But I just, I marvel at, at how I continue to unravel his Lecter's games. And what an amazing creation that he is. I mean, the thought that he is a therapist. In the book, they go into more detail. But he is a therapist that actually turns his patients out on the world. It's like he's creating monsters. He goes to trials and gets killers off because he wants them out in the world. I mean, he's just a bad influence, and yet we can't help but be seduced by him. And as he's portrayed by Hopkins here in this world, we're all falling for him, right? I mean, we're all laying down on his dinner plate. I got questions about this guy as a therapist. (laughs) He's got this British accent, but he seems to have like the most redneck rubes, as a word he would use, as his patients, and it's all in the Rust Belt. I just, this is someone I, I see spending time in New York as a therapist, not in the Midwest. Watching it this time, it just came off as just as convenient almost. I would suggest you definitely check the character out in the book. There's just a little bit more about that, but he really seems to cultivate the worst kind of personalities around him. It's sort of by design. It's who he would rather associate with. He gets bored with people, and when he's bored with you, he'll typically kill you, actually. So what he wants to do is be entertained, and freaks entertain him, and smart people entertain him. So I think that's why Clarice stands a chance here, is that not only is she a pretty like any woman that he would have chewed up before, but he can see an equal here, too. Now, the one thing I couldn't figure out was with his game. I mean, she walks in, and they have their little talk, and then he sends her off with the thing, and Miggs throws cum in her face. And he calls her back, and as a way of apology, he gives her clues. But I'm thinking the apology is completely incidental. He wants this game to continue, right? Yeah, I agree with you. He would hate to see her go away and never come back. I mean, it's almost like they're dating. He like he wants to get another date, and he knows that if there's cum on her face, that she's not (laughs) going to do it again. So he's keeping her coming back, and she's here under false pretenses anyway, and she doesn't even know it. But this survey that Lecter's supposed to fill out, nobody really at the agency cares about another survey from Hannibal Lecter. They they don't think they're going to get anything. They want to see what she can get out of him about Buffalo Bill, and after that incident, she won't be back. So, yeah, he wants to keep the game going. He won't tell her anything from the survey. He won't fill it out, but he's like, I'll give you a chance at advancement, and gives her the tip on where the patient is. Now, after this, I gotta say, I have something here in my notes that really confused me, because she gets the cum thrown in her face, and then she goes and cries on her car, and then she goes to a training situation where she gets killed because she didn't check the corner. Then she goes for a run with her friend, and they're quizzing each other on FBI rules. Then she gets a call from Crawford, and Crawford's like, yeah, this was a hard day. This was all one day? 
Arnie, do you think a face full of cum means you should get to go home early for the day? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> That's how it is at my job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I love the editing in this movie. I love the way that this jumps in this sequence. I think there's real logic to watching her cry about a memory that Lecter stirred up. I mean, he goes there. He calls her a rube and calls her poor white trash. And she's dealing with her origins when she gets out in that car and loses it at the car. What's the next thing we see? Her picking up the gun and pointing it right at the camera. I mean, like, dead center at us. Boom, boom, boom. We get it. We get her, right? We get what she is fighting for, who she's trying to protect, and what she's trying to run from. I love this sequence. She's studying up on him, too. I mean, part of that montage is her going back to the microfish and figuring out that, well, there's this yourself storage facility outside of Baltimore where he practices. Well, I'm going to say this. We've spoken about how smart Lecter is, and, and I get that. He could fuck with your mind, and he does it well. When it comes to his clues, man, it, it's reminding me of Batman 66. It's like... A paperclip holds together paper. Paper's made from trees. Trees point up to the sky. The moon. The moon controls the tides. The Joker's at the beach. (laughs) It it just, uh, it seems like a screenwriter wanting to come off clever. Well, you are calling out some of the things that are attributable to the screenwriter. The book is far less driven by anagrams. There are no real anagrams in the novel. Every time that he's kind of giving a word game clue, it's probably something that Ted Talley wrote here. Yourself, storage facility is not in the book. And it's just really a shortcut because they need to get somewhere that takes the novel many more chapters to get to. The big difference is they're telling us that this is a storage facility that Hannibal Lecter had, the rest of him. This is all the things that nobody figured out about Hannibal Lecter when they put him away, and he just gave Clarice the key to. Now, I think that's fascinating. I'm like, I want to play around with the rap. I'm like, what else you got in here? Is Jimmy Hoffa here? Like, what else is in this thug? Can you, what an amazing gift, but just, because we're focused on the Buffalo Bill story, we, we can't play with the other things. But I'm like, I can't believe you gave him the keys to the whole kingdom. But in all of this stuff that he's collected, there is a car with the severed mannequin head and the head of his former patient in the jar. And this was always a little confusing. That head of the former patient had lipstick on it. Yes. That remained in the formaldehyde for all these years. And it's Buffalo Bill who killed this person. And Hannibal just was like, oh, ahead. I'm going to keep this. I agree. This is something that plays better in the novel. In the novel, this storage facility is his patient, Raspails. Raspail kept the head of his lover there. And his lover was whose head was removed by a mutual friend, Buffalo Bill. For the sake of simplicity, they just compiled it and said, well, they were lovers and he killed him and I kept the head. It's a shortcut. They want to make it simple for the audience because there's a lot of details here. And in the novel, there's more time to pour over these things and slowly come to understand them. In a movie, we need to get it pretty quick. And it's a shortcut they make. But in doing so, I do think one of the lesser successful thing is the idea that they imply that Jane Gum would ever date another man. He's not gay, and, and the way that he comes off, it, he's something else. I mean, they try to make that case that as a transsexual, he's driven by other things. In the book, they never have him have a male lover. He never dates anyone. He knows this Raspail guy just by being in the gay community, but he himself, they would never date, and he wouldn't seek out other men. That's not what he's looking for. 
And I feel like this would be a lot touchier in, in today's age, implying violence and homosexuality and transgender. E- even in this film, they do back away and say, you know, transgenders are typically passive. And so he doesn't have a real gender issue. It's something else. And that's how it's playing out, which I appreciated that. Even, you know, in 91, they were forward thinking enough to bring that up that it is something else. It's not because of the sexuality. Oh, no, it was hot at the time. You're, you're onto something there. This movie did have protests from the gay community. They didn't like the Hollywood treatment of gays as psychopathic killers. And I really think Basic Instinct is maybe more responsible for this than Silence of the Lambs. But, yeah, it was a rap that the gay community, particularly in a time of AIDS where they already felt oppressed, and it didn't play well. But I think over time, all is forgiven here. He did make Philadelphia next. So Jonathan Demme did try to do some mea culpas for some of the negative stereotyping he does here but by the same token i got a lot of the whole to go back to manhunter the red dragon transformation only this time gum was trying to transform himself into a woman you're absolutely right that this is the boilerplate of the last story the arc is the same that by killing he will be able to become something super powerful now in this case instead of it's a masculine dragon it's the idea of being a woman itself and in the book it's explored a little bit more i'll check it out in books and nachos i won't get it in here but yes you're right it's identical and i think my biggest problem with carrying over the whole transformation thing is the use of the moth which becomes very convenient later on in this film. Yes, it's an obvious metaphor. Moss go into cocoons and come out with wings. It just, it makes things very convenient later on in this film. And so I, I didn't really mind the transformation thing. Again, if I had no knowledge of these books, I'm like, oh, they remade Manhunter, but it's a lot better, better actors, you know, all that. It's just certain parts of those elements that weaken the film later on. Here's the thing. I never got why Buffalo Bill wanted to transform or exactly what he wanted to transform into. Buffalo Bill in this movie is a monster, plain and simple, and he just is. Oh, no, they make it clear in this. I think they explain it enough, Arnie. Because of his abuse. Which is a one-dropped line, which I only caught on this viewing. Okay, I thought it was clear. He wanted to get gender reassignment, but he psychologically didn't pass the check. Because he didn't really want it. So, why... It was because of the abuse. It was coming out in a violent way. He was confused. It was coming out in this psychotic way. And so this is how he's carrying out that transformation because he couldn't get it medically. And he had these psycho issues. It was being carried out by a skin suit. I think I was able to empathize and understand the tooth fairy a lot more than Buffalo Bill. Oh, I agree. Last time I heard you really relating in the second half and empathizing with Red Dragon. You, I, I heard you there, and you're right. We don't have that connection with James Gum. Listening to the commentary track that came with the Criterion DVD, Arnie, Jonathan Demme agrees with you. He's very proud of this movie. He likes it a lot, but he says the one thing that he regrets and wishes that he could embolden is the fact of how important child abuse is to the way that it makes James Gum behave. And the one thing that they throw in here, he said that his friend actually does the televangelist bit. If you recall, after Miggs dies at the coaxing of Lecter, Chilton tortures him by playing a religious program for him. And you can watch that as a special features on the DVD. Preachers all talking about the the effects of child abuse on children and, and Jesus helping the children and all of that. So that was the one way he said that he tried to deal with it. But of course, nobody could hear it except as an extra on the DVD. That's why that was on the DVD. I was wondering what the fuck this preacher was. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. Just a little fun thing. 
and it's a friend of Jonathan Demme's. You, you may notice if the more you watch Jonathan Demme's, he has a regular cast of characters that always are in his movies and pop up in all sorts of different ways. Hey, Rambo 2's uh, Charles Napier later on. Yeah, I'll point him out as we get <laughs> go through the movie. You talked about Meg's death. This is also one that I'm like, so Hannibal talked him into swallowing his own tongue? Love it. How evil I is like that? this. Someone could say something that it would actually make you have like some kind of seizure. Like how evil is that? That is like it's unimaginable and yet you believe this guy could do it. Oh, I love that. I do. And it really especially when I was younger and viewing this as a big serial killer film, love that he could do it. As an adult, I'm like, what was it a seizure? Did he talk him into a seizure? Was it a suicide where like he made Meg's fig so bad that he was able to kill himself by swallowing his own tongue? Can somebody even do that? I always thought that he just spoke such horrible things doing his psychological dissection on Miggs that he wanted to commit suicide and somehow he swallowed his own tongue. That's how I've always taken this. I love it that you could just sit there and taunt someone to where they just kill themselves finally. It's ambiguous, but I, I think all of the things that you guys just said are great readings of it. It could be any of those. And, and all of them just make Lecter so wicked. The thing that Crawford says to Foster early on is you don't want Lecter inside your head. And it's true. And here's an early omen for what can happen when you let him in. And of course, that's what she's going to do. That's why she comes back. That's the game, the, the quid pro quo they have to play. If she wants to find out what's in his head, she's going to have to tell him what's going on in hers and let him in. And now they introduce something that's going to really speed up the plot here and make it all the more important that they find out at a very rapid pace. You know, it's called a ticking clock in screenwriting. It's like you want to introduce something that allows urgency into your story. Not that, oh, we have to stop the bad guys sometime. We have to stop them right this second. And that is that the newest victim is the daughter of a senator. That, oh, it didn't really matter, or it mattered, but, you know, whatever. Low-class girls go missing all the time, and they're overweight and not pretty anyway, and whatever. But now, it's a big deal because this is a politician's kid, and even the President of the United States has weighed in on this, and all eyes are now on the FBI to produce this guy and save this woman's life in three days. I love how she's kidnapped. Now, when I first saw this movie, I didn't see it in theaters. I saw it when it was pretty new on video, though. I was, as I said, I think in the last podcast, big into serial killers, both real and fictional. And so I recognized Buffalo Bill's MO immediately as Ted Bundy. I lived in Florida during Bundy's execution. Tuesday was Friday. And <laughs> the bum arm, that was right out of Bundy's book. Uh, you're right. I didn't know this, but he's a composite of three people, Gum. And that may be why he feels more like a monster than a one solid profile. But some of this M.O. definitely here as the way he lures her into that van. It's classic Ted Bundy. Yeah, I did not know that was based on Bundy. I love how he does it. It's very realistic. And I also love, you know, one of my problems with Manhunter was that the Tooth Fairy, we never see him until like an hour into the film. Gum gets introduced fairly early on in this film. 30 minutes. Yeah, much quicker. And I like that because it just makes more sense why I'm going to be invested in what's going on with him later in the film because I don't have to wait halfway through the film to ever see him. But I, I love how innocent it seems. Oh, can you help me with this sofa? You know, it adds a lot more tension and, and horror because of how real that seems. Now, before this movie, I'd never seen Ted Levine, never heard of Ted Levine, found him to be 
so utterly creepy. This man might as well have been Buffalo Bill with his weird warbly voice and that strange look. He just has a weird face in this. Yes. I'm surprised he was able to get work after this. I feel like this is the kind of role that typecasts you forever. He went on to do some work in Monk, and he pops up in little indie movies from time to time, and God bless him. He really goes for it here. I feel like you're watching someone with no vanity. I mean, he just literally tucks it in right in front of you and, <laughs> and does the dance. And, you know, a lot of actors talk about wanting to get raw and doing it, but it's quite another thing to do it in a movie that I mean, you know that it's going to be a major release. I mean, this is a major motion picture, and maybe no one could have anticipated how widely this is seen, but you got to have some reservations to put something like that, so much of yourself out there. Props to Ted Levine. He really goes for it, and this movie succeeds, and the threat of Buffalo Bill is communicated because of his total physical performance here. I mean, I just, the voice, the mannerisms, everything. This could have been really the failing of the movie. Jody and Lecter are really working, but if you didn't have the right villain here, the triangulation wouldn't work. And we have someone that is on par with them. That's got to be stopped. It's perfect. At this point, where they couldn't get it right in Red Dragon and Manhunter, they figured it out. I now care about all three principles exactly the same. But I was having this weird thing because I'm a huge fan of Monk. And when Monk came on, Marjorie's like, that's Ted Levine. That's Buffalo Bill. I'm like, who are you talking about? Because he, he grew a mustache. And really, I think that's the only way he was ever able to find work because he looked so different. <laughs> Wow, that's going to be something when you grow a stash to look less lecherous. <laughs> <laughs> but that's really his voice. And so now I know Captain Stottlemyre is kind of this gruff, lovable presence. And so I'm watching Buffalo Bill and hearing Captain Stottlemyre, and it's really fucking me up. Because I no longer find him as creepy. It's almost like seeing Ted Danson as a serial killer after watching Cheers for years. You know, it's... Oh, you feel like watching Silence of the Lambs after watching Monk is not advisable? Correct. It it <laughs> takes away from the horror of Buffalo Bill. All of a sudden, you're relating to this guy on a different level because you know him. I know him so well, and that voice is the same. Okay. I would have figured the opposite. I, mean, I don't think I could have watched Monk because, you know, I'd be thinking of Goodbye Horses. But, <laughs> yeah, whatever. To each his own. I don't need a re another reason not to watch Monk. I just don't watch the show. So I'll watch Silence of the Lambs many more times and i love levine in this i think he is awesome oh i love what he does in this i really do and i love his look i love and you're right about all the choices he makes the the dance right yeah, it was totally him uh, it should be said it was not in the book and it was not in the script and he said you've got to do this this tells the audience more than anything else you've gotten here what this guy is about and what he's trying to do and he's right and it's one of those scenes before I'd ever even seen this movie. Like I said, at the beginning of this retrospective, I came to Silence of the Lambs much later on after its release. But this was one of those scenes I knew about. Like, it's one of those scenes, tucking it in and dancing, that everyone talks about after they saw this film. <laughs> it's cool to know. I saw it in a second-run theater, but I saw it when it originally came out. So everything was new to me. It was Everything was a surprise. I am curious now, what's the shower scene? What's the scene that everyone goes in the movie already knowing before they even see it for their first time? So this is one of them, huh? Oh, this is, yes, definitely one of them. I'm waiting for the tucked-in scene. But what I find funny is I talk to people, some people don't realize he tucked it. Some people think that's the woman suit. 
Yeah. Well, it does it does look like he puts on the top of someone's scalp at the beginning yes. when he's putting on the makeup. So, uh-huh. yeah, I can, but I was paying attention to that this time. <laughs> Is he wearing this? No, there's no suit on him except that scalp he's wearing. Plus, he goes through all the motions. He's obviously talking. Yes. <laughs> yeah. No, it's it, the suit's not done. That's the key reason why you know he's not wearing the suit. The suit is actually on a dresser's mannequin. Jody sees it at the climax of the film. It's not ready yet. It, it only has one breast at this point. <laughs> you know, one of my problems with Manhunter was Tooth Fairy. I didn't feel a lot of fear towards him and we talked about how really his role was for us to more empathize with him we're supposed to distance ourselves from the hero and have more empathy for the serial killer in that film and that didn't really work for me i like this film there's no empathy for him and they create a monster here you know when he's saying it puts the lotion on its skin and Catherine keeps refusing put the fucking lotion in the basket like the way he says it the way his voice changes i'm scared of this guy he is scary his line delivery is just his presence even worse right after he does that and she starts screaming because she sees the nails of the other victims, the fingernails broken off, trying to claw out of the well. He's like trying to emulate her. All he can think about is like, oh, she's a woman. I like, how do you do that? Do you shake your shoulders a little? And like, yeah, that's where it blows my mind. It kind of reminds me of a Texas Chainsaw Massacre scene where she's at the dinner table and screaming and then Leatherface starts screaming and then they're all screaming. It's like it suddenly become this this game. See, and I took that scene differently. I thought he was just taunting her. I didn't think he was trying to learn that behavior by doing it. Well, maybe this is something I got from the book. That's when we get to the Jane Gum scenes in the book, you clearly understand that everything is a projection of how to be a woman. And that is what he is all about. So maybe I'm just reading it. This is the first time I saw this movie after having read the book. So it's coloring my experience. But anyway, you interpret it, a horrifying moment. And Demi and the cast and crew admit that these were the toughest scenes to film. They're like, ah, the breakout of Hopkins and all of that, that was fun. But these scenes, everyone left the set just feeling gross. You know, we we started off having this debate. Are these horror films? Are they crime films? What are they? Are they thrillers? I don't really feel the horror feel so much with Lecter. Yes, you get the iconic scenes with the mask on him. But it's really Buffalo Bill. If, the, if this is a horror film, it's I think it's because of Buffalo Bill. Lecter plays the mind games, and he, he psychologically, he's going to mess you up. But I'm scared when Buffalo Bill is on the screen. I agree that there's a lot of tension with there. The thing that I think makes it different than horror is Buffalo Bill's threat is always very contained. And in this case, it is strictly to the senator's daughter. In a horror film, he'd be after more. Is that true of Texas Chainsaw Massacre? It, there's a whole group of people who break down and are killed, yes. So it's about a process of elimination. I mean, there are a group of women here. Yeah, she's the sixth victim. She's actually the seventh. The sixth one is the one that turns up they do the autopsy in the next scene. Okay. But the movie focuses on him threatening one person. What we witness is him threatening one person. Lecter is more horrific in the classic horror sense because Lecter is a threat to more people in this film than Gum is. Well, yeah. If you're not his type, then Gum's not going to get you. Lecter could be set off by anything, and he definitely can figure out a way to get you. Again, there are so many knockoffs of this, like Kiss the Girls, not horror films. (laughs) Well, I think that you can make the case for any other entry in this series as being more crime procedural, but this to me is a horror movie. It's just the way that it's shot. The dungeon quality, the macabre, I mean, the camera work. I want to give a big shout out, and I was horrified to see that Tak Fujimoto wasn't even nominated for cinematography, but he deserves to rank right up there in high accolades with Demi, Foster, Hopkins. The way that he moves his camera here, 
one of the great tricks that he's using to help Hopkins is that he's always putting a key light so that Hopkins' eyes glow. There's actually a pinpoint of light coming. It looks like he has evil eyes, you know, <laughs> like these pinpoints of light, and he never blinks. I just thought it's because his eyes were so wide open the whole time. You are drawn by his eyes in this film. That a lot is portrayed through his eyes. And that's the DP helping him out with those choices and really accenting what's going on in that head. I mean, it's a lighting choice that is helping Hopkins convey what he's here to do. The, the lighting choice I really noticed is later on when he's in Tennessee and he's lit from above and it creates the shadow and keeps his face in shadow while the rest of him's really bright. But from the camera angles, what I love is all the use of reflection especially in the glass scenes where whoever you're seeing, you see the other in the reflection. And it just really such a great use of the angles. Yeah. And one of the big themes of this movie is coveting, that we want to look around. And Manhunter, it was all arty. You know, I love the style of it. And it's, it's a big reason that I recommend going to see it. But it's all about art compositions, you know, angles, geometry. It was all very precious. Here, the camera moves. And it's everything you see, you're studying. When you walk into a room, it's usually a wide Single, single take and you're looking around at everything you're allowed to be a part of the investigation because this camera is coveting everything around it and fujimoto is really taken to the theme of this movie and brought it into his work and i love these long takes i love these intense close-ups i mean you really are allowed to participate because of the way that this film is shot you're just more invested in the mystery than you ever would be with michael mann style i'm so glad that michael mann didn't come back and direct Silence of the Lambs, because I just feel like he would have had a problem probably with a female protagonist. I've never seen him make a movie about a strong female protagonist, and I just don't feel like his cold impulses would bring us in the way that Demi and Tak Fujimoto do with the camera work here. So you mentioned the autopsy scene, and that's the next one. And this scene always had a big visceral impact on me with the body there. And I re- I think what I'm getting out of the movie and what Demi wants me to get out of the movie are different, though. I think Demi really wants me to feel moved by the scene where Jodie Foster sends all the police out. And what gets me is the gore and the smell and the Vicks vapor rub under the nose. See, all of that worked for me. The way she sends them all out to show that she's in control. And then I love when they first unveil the body. You don't see the body. You only see the people react around the body. And the way they turn away, like, I like that. I like seeing the reactions and letting that convey the horror of the situation more than actually showing this prosthetic body and throwing some fake gore on it that they could have done. Everything worked for me. You know what, Jacob? What's shocking? And I would have thought, like you, up until I heard the directing commentary, that that was just a dummy. They hired an actress. They went all Twin Peaks on it. They did. (laughs) See, that's a real living person with a Tootsie Roll down her throat. The bug cocoon is made out of gummy bears and Tootsie Rolls, and they shoved it down there. They said she had to gag. (laughs) As soon as they yelled cut, she would just gag because they had to pull that thing out of her. But they felt like, yeah, prosthetics would take them out. And part of the visceral realism here is that's a real actress just laying there on the slab. You mentioned Twin Peaks. This is the part of the movie that I unavoidably, because the show was coming out more or less at the same time as this, it had premiered on television the year prior, and it was still on television at this time in its second season. Do you guys think Twin Peaks at this moment? To me, the influence is heavy, and it's not accidental. What I think of Twin Peaks with this scene is, you know, with the moth being stuck in the throat, I can't help but think of the letters under the fingernails that Twin Peaks did. Yeah. Yeah, and 
the girls being pulled out of the river. There's just, you know, the fact that it's all these young women. And well, I'll just go ahead and say it. David Lynch was approached by Dino De Laurentiis to direct Manhunter. He had made Doom for De Laurentiis, and he had a contract in which he was to make one more film with him. Oh, they were actually going to hire him after Dune. Well, it was <laughs> part of the contract. I don't think Dino would have wanted to. That was not successful. And I don't think Lynch wanted to work for Dino, which is why he went with his own project, Blue Velvet. And I think it's to the best of everybody that he made Blue Velvet instead of Manhunter. But interesting to know, I think, that a part of Twin Peaks owes a debt to Thomas Harris and Manhunter and Red Dragon. I think I think we can see some of these origins here. I think it's the combination of Silence of the Lambs and Twin Peaks that made me really idolize the FBI around this time. I think she's the model that would be used for Scully in X-Files. Mm-hmm. Funny. But one of the things that comes up in the commentary is how much Demi and many of the actors are kind of liberal and don't like the FBI. It was a reservation that Demi had to doing the movie. He called this what Top Gun did to the Air Force. This did to the FBI. And the FBI agents love this. It's like a recruiting tool. Well, he didn't want to do that because to him, the FBI meant, oh, these were the guys that got Martin Luther King killed. These are the guys that do horrible, unethical things. And, you know, he's thinking of Hoover and all of that. So I feel like that was a stumbling block for him. He did want to glorify the FBI, but it all worked out. At the end of the day, he's the right director for the job, and I think he, he frames the agents just right. It's not like they all come out looking good. I mean, Crawford's kind of a lech, right? I mean, a lot of these guys are looking like good old boys. Well, I thought that was just the point of the film. I mean, it would be to offset what Clarice and to show what she was going through, that it was a good old boys network. That I, mm-hmm. I just thought that's how it was supposed to be played. Yeah. But I don't think this moment compares to anything she's got with the back and forth with Lecter. I still feel like the crux of this movie, the best scenes in this movie, every time that I'm in love with this movie the most, it's her quid pro quo. When I'm in love with this movie the most, Hopkins is on the screen with or without her. I liked Hopkins' scenes with the senator just as much as I liked oh, his yeah. scenes with Clarice. I liked his scenes with the two security guards just as much as I liked his scenes with Clarice. His scene with Chilton, where Chilton's revealing that he got played. All of these scenes are just as powerful as the quid pro quo to me. Now we're getting back into our age-old argument, Arnie, of who do you identify with? You're always going with the killers. You're always going with the bad guys. I'm always going with the victims. It's kind of funny because while watching this, Marjorie said, this movie made me want to be an FBI agent. And I turned to her and said, that's funny. This movie made me want to be a serial killer cannibal. Exactly. I just think this is how we're wired, and I'm going to look for my Jamie Lee Curtis. You're going to look at the Michael Myers. and But I will say this. As much as I'm prone to care more about Foster, I can say I love Hopkins, and I just can't get enough of him here. I am seduced by his evil, and I really – you're right. Every time he's on the screen, and it's really only about 16, 17 minutes of screen time that he has here, it's electrifying. You feel like he did get a Best Actor win, but the truth of the matter is it's a supporting part. He's not on the screen enough to really call himself the acting star of the movie, but it's the kind of iconic, memorable moment that he stays with you. I'm like you guys. I'm mesmerized when Lecter's on the screen. I'm into all of those scenes. When you're saying powerful, Arnie, I don't think Chilton and Lecter's conversations are just as powerful as Clarice's and Lecter's. Those have much more emotional depth. I like Chilton because Chilton's an ass and Lecter's <laughs> handing it to him. Like yes. Lecter, I, I enjoy his interactions, but as far as emotional depth, it's all about Lecter and Clarice. He doesn't have that emotional depth with anyone else in this film. Yes, he taunts him. I love it, that scene with the senator where he 
you know, I like your suit. Like, I, I, I laugh. That's, it's, it's great. You know, talks about her nipples. Are they rough? Like, I love how he taunts people, but emotional power, that's between him and Clarice. See, and to me, though, I get as much power when he's asking the senator if when her child dies, if she'll have ghost pains at her nipples like an amputated limb. You know, to me, him working them and getting in their head the same as he's doing to Clarice is what's powerful to me. Of course, but the senator can't play ball like Clarice does. Clarice can roll with it. Clarice will respond honestly and go there. You know, he's like, did you get sodomized? Did you, you know, what happened? He's going through the worst. Most people would clam up. Most people would be like, fuck you and walk out. Clarice is heroic because she is willing to bear her soul to him to get the job done. And before we put her too high on a pedestal, she also fucking tricks him. She gets a lie through him. She knows it. It's a lie. And she still sells him on Anthrax Island. And I thought that was great. I love that. And I want to state, for the record, I love Clarice, the character. Foster's performance, meh. But Clarice, the character, wonderful. Yeah, we needed to feel that if she's going to be the equal to Lecter, that she can do what he does. And she does. She fools him with this, oh, we'll let you swim with uh, for an hour and we'll transfer you to New York. And, you know, I, I, we get it. I, I really feel like we would understand his need to believe that because who wouldn't want away from Chilton? I mean, he is the real despicable character of this movie. The one that's easiest to hate, oddly enough, is Chilton. And I'm surprised he fell for it. I really, watching this, thought that he would be such a super evil, super smart person that he wouldn't fall for it. And he did. And I love that she got one over on him. Uh, Will Graham couldn't have done it. It really required (laughs) the skills of a comely woman. And I would, again, advocate it. It requires the skills of an actress of the caliber of Jodie Foster in order to sell it. But it's a great turn of events. And Chilton's listening to all of this going down, and he's jealous. You know, it's a little more clearly articulated in the book, but... Oh, I I thought it was very clear in the movie. Okay. He was ticked that he was the doctor. He's the one that's supposed to have the breakthroughs with them, and that was all being taken away by the FBI and Clarice. And there's a great scene in the movie where he's having the press conference, and they're like, what's the name of the killer? He's like, I can't say that, but my name's Chilton. See it? And, you know, he starts spelling it for him. Like, I love... He's such a bastard. He's as much a bastard as Stephen Lang was in Manhunter, and they serve the same function, I feel like. The whole point is to have one person that they're dead meat, and you kind of want the villain to do it, even though you know you're shouldn't this is some person that a serial killer can get we'll let him have this one because he's not one of our favorite members of the human race and he's the reason lector escapes he is so obsessed with his own fame and notoriety he forgets his cross pen which is what hannibal uses to pick the lock yep and he's like a peacock isn't he when he takes hannibal off that plane he's like It's almost like he is claiming Hannibal's intellect as his own, like he's the one who's going to save the senator's daughter. I just – I love that. No, it's great and it's fun and you're right. He seals his own fate here. It's it's more or less asking for the end that he gets. I have a question and maybe this is covered in the book. Maybe it's mentioned in the movie. I just missed it. So Chilton, he sets up this own deal with the senator. They bring Lecter to Memphis and where are they keeping – Lecter, he's in a giant bird cage or something. I don't know if this is a museum. <laughs> Was it an abandoned floor uh, at the police? It's the courthouse. Okay. It's the Shelby courthouse that they've uh, turned in all five floors into his prison. 
I agree with you. Why don't they fly him back to Baltimore? I guess the only thing I can think of is they're following up on the leads that he drops. He gives a physical description. He uses the name Lewis Friend. They're hunting to find this out. And, you know, the clock is racing. They only have one more day, really. I mean, tomorrow she's going to get killed. They know that. So they're having him in close proximity in case they have follow-up questions. And, you know, he demands to say it to the senator's face again. That's the only way I can really explain why. And, you know what, it's not Crawford's call anymore. They make a point uh, in the movie to say that it's taken away from Crawford because the ruse is found out and Crawford is the one that greenlit Clarice to, to lie to Lecter. They're essentially taken out. And in the book, they're really taken out. Clarice looks like she's not going to graduate because of it, and Crawford is totally talking about retirement, and they're really out of the picture. But because they're out of the picture, the failure and the escape of Lecter is totally not on them. It is totally Chilton and the new guy uh, that they briefly feature here, Crindler. And I hate to say this, when I started having problems with Manhunter, is that beginning of that second hour, halfway through this film, again... I start having problems once they bring Lecter to Tennessee because you said it, Stuart, Clarice and Crawford, the F, you know, they kind of drop out of the film and I feel that. I feel the editing here and I know they're, they got to play it chronologically. It just feels like we get the second half of this film, half of that is devoted to Lecter and his escape and then we jump to the other half where it's Clarice and Buffalo Bill and it just seems like such an abrupt change in the pacing of this film. I'm not going to say it's as bad as Matrix Revolutions. That film, you know, you get one hour of people in mechanical suits fighting Sentinels <laughs> and then another hour of Neo in the Matrix fighting Agent Smith. And then, like, there's no editing at all interspersing those two stories. Not as bad as that, but it, it just feels so abrupt that you had this story and it's all interweaved and now it's like two separate halves. And it kind of just takes me out because so much of it now is about Lecter and his escape. And then we're going to jump back to Buffalo Bill and Clarice. You know what, Jacob? I hadn't put that together until you said it because I think I know this movie too well. But looking at it from that perspective, you're completely right, because Lecter's escape is completely incidental. It has no impact on the Buffalo Bill climax of the story at all. He escapes and he goes away. And so Clarice has already gotten the last bits of information she needs before he escapes. So to have him escaping at the same time would have ratcheted up the tension, you know, like Return of the Jedi, when you have all the multiple fights going on, you could have had all this going on at once. Or if he somehow impacted, his escape impacted. It does. You guys are totally wrong. It impacts them because everyone is looking to Lecter to finally give the name of this guy. They're waiting for him to say, it is Jane Gum. He lives here. You can find him here. And when he flies the coop, all hope of that is lost, and most of them are writing off Catherine is dead. There's just no saving the senator. This is a high-profile failure. Except there's this whole conversation between Lecter and Clarice while he's in this birdcage in the courthouse where he gives her the final clue that spurns it on. She already has that final clue that she needs to find Buffalo Bill. But she doesn't know it. That's, the, that's exactly right. From this point further, Clarice is going to have to trust her own instincts 
to do the job in order to save her. There is no turning to the man to figure this out. She has to follow her instincts and the training that he's tried to lead her to figure it out. And she does figure it out. He does not tell her. He gives the indication that the pattern of death is not random. And that's really it. That's what he passes to her in the notes. And it's for her to figure out what he has. He doesn't know either. It should be said, it's been ten years since he met the guy. He would have no idea where he is. But he knows where he is because he's paid attention and he knows the profile of a serial killer. It's not because he has information that nobody else has. It's because he's smarter than everyone else. And Clarice proves she's just as smart. Here's the problem. He escapes. Okay, is that a danger to Clarice? No, he's not going to go after you. Like, they don't play up that tension at all. I just don't know why so much time was devoted to the escape. It's cool how he does it. Yeah. I just wish it was edited better. No, no, I cannot disagree more. This is an important diversion. It's a very important. We aren't expecting this. And it brilliantly ties in to the themes of this movie, which is about transformation. Every character here changes. And Lecter's no different. He's in a cocoon as well, and he busts right on out, and very dramatically, I should add. He has a butterfly pinned to the wall. Yes. <laughs> Perhaps the most questionable choice I have in the entire movie is that he takes the time to get crepe paper and string that <laughs> guy up the way that he does. But I, you know what? At that point, I'm so riveted by what's going on. I'll give them this little artistic license. It's not in the book, per se, but it's just one of those images Well, all always remember when we think of the movie and I don't know why he rigged the lights and, and did all of that but I love the breakout I love the fact that the ruse he uses to get the guards to come in is he orders a second dinner of lamb. Yes. After the whole conversation with Clarice about what the lambs are and how she tried to save the lamb and tried to get one lamb to safety. Ah, let's kill another lamb. <laughs> He's so sadistic. It would have only been better if she was there to see that why he eats this rarely cooked lamb. He's such a bastard. I, I never caught that before when I had seen this. This time it stuck out and I just smiled. I like that. Uh, it does really let you know that at the end of the day, as much as you can like Lecter, he doesn't like you. <laughs> you know, like he really is an evil, evil seductive. I know I, I have so many changing emotions about Hopkins and you want to love him so much of the time, but you're right. How horrible to be able to walk away from that very gripping story. And I, I've got to say, Arnie, if you give Foster nothing else, the way that she does that monologue is amazing. They were originally going to shoot a flashback of child Clarice seeing the lamb slaughter and all of that. But when Demi saw her do that take, he was like, nope, that's the movie. We're not going to Montana. This performance tells us everything we need to know about her inner struggle. It's a great scene. I think Foster pulls it off because the whole monologue is kind of ridiculous about like, I'm sitting there trying not to laugh about these screaming lambs and she runs away with one. Like, it's kind of silly. It is. And I'm glad they didn't film it, because could you imagine actually seeing a girl carrying a lamb as big as she is? So to her credit, she pulls it off. As ridiculous as this story comes off at times, I'm drawn into it. I'm gripped while she's telling it. I agree. This could go very, very wrong. Monologues are tough. Monologues are where actors prove themselves. There's a lot of people that can be movie stars if they are handsome or, you know, they have a good cinematographer. But actors show their chops when they're able to give monologues. And she pulled it off. You're right. Even if you don't agree that it was necessary. Can we all agree this is a tremendous suspense sequence? I'm not saying it's not necessary. I'm just saying I wish it was edited into the film better. That's all I'm saying, Stuart. I'm glad it's here. It's cool. 
I just wish this last act was integrated with the two separate stories better. You know what I love about this scene is the music. There's only two scenes in this movie where the music really stands out. Otherwise, I think the score is purely functional. But in this scene and in the Goodbye Horses scene are the two scenes where the music really elevates everything. And just Hopkins' facial expression, the iconic blood around his chin. I think this is really more famous nowadays than even the mask. Yeah, there's that terrifying moment where he actually is running at the camera. Again, Demi just loves to hold cameras inches away from people's faces, and there's nothing quite like seeing Anthony Hopkins running at you with his mouth open here. I mean, who would have thought that that would be scary? I mean, Christopher Lloyd couldn't have done it. Let me put it that way. (laughs) But yes, you fear him. We've known for the whole movie, and when you apply Manhunter, a whole other movie of all the things that he has done back in the day. But the old man still got the skills. The old man has still got it, and he really gets these guys. Ugh. Although I couldn't help but think of Tooth Fairy when he bites the guy on the lip. Mm, yeah, good point. It is kind of like that. But maybe that's why they related to him. Tooth Fairy was a fan of his, so maybe that's why. It's not everybody that can, without even seasoning, <laughs> just dig right into your flesh. And he didn't have to use fake teeth to do it, so. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, and watching it this time, the facial expression on Hopkins, you again believe his pulse never went above 85. Mm-hmm. Great scene. Great scene. Honestly makes the rest of the movie a little bit of a letdown. I've heard that complaint, that people feel like the movie changes. You're going to hear it some more then. That the movie changes for them after it's over. But for me, it's just not true. Like I said, this is the end of his storyline. And it's a part of the transformation theme that every character goes through. I feel like it's coming at a great moment. And maybe you're right. Maybe there isn't anything as exciting in the rest of the movie. But I don't feel like the movie runs out of gas. It doesn't run out of gas, but it never reaches this height again. It's moving towards the end now. It's got plenty of gas to get to that end, but it's not doing any (laughs) skids or anything fancy. It's just driving straight to that end. Jacob, I got to ask, did you know about the face swap? Did you know that that was Hopkins being wheeled away on the gurney and that it was the dead guy up at the top of the elevator? Yes, when I first saw this, I knew about I mean, there, the tucking scene and the face swap. Those are the two big scenes that nah. I had heard about before I'd ever seen this movie. Yeah, how could you not say that? I mean, that's just a secret you gotta blow. Here's what's funny, is I'd forgotten about the face swap until I was watching it. And then it all of a sudden came rushing back like a repressed memory how he escaped. Mm-hmm. It was a great thing to be able to re-experience like that. What's funny to me is, I mean, it kind of looks like Hopkins laying it there, does, right? It does, it does <laughs> It does now, yeah. A lot of cameos in these scenes. I don't know if you guys noticed or not. Demi likes to use a lot of musicians here. And Chris Isaac, do you see him? He's one of the SWAT team that comes in. Wicked game, Chris Isaac. I know him. He was in the Twin Peaks movie, but... He ruined that, yes. But here he's actually a little (laughs) bit better. And George Romero is one of the cops as well. Is there a Chris Elliott cameo? (laughs) No, no. (laughs) To carry over for Manhunter. But two of the people from Manhunter are in Silence of the Lambs as well. Dan Butler was one of the forensic guys. He's one of the bug guys in this movie. And Barney, the caretaker at the Baltimore Institute, he was actually one of the cops in Manhunter that was pursuing in St. Louis. You know, you mentioned the bug guys, and that is one of the scenes with the Jodie Foster feminism I love, is like when the bug guy is hitting on her. She can't escape it even with the bug guys. (laughs) Yeah, I like it. It's everyone. I mean, there's 
scenes, and, and you, Stuart, you talked about these long shots where he just lets the camera hang there. I mean, people walk by her and just like do 360s and just scan her. And I, you know, again with that bug, the bug doctors with their PhDs. <laughs> yeah, it's so blatant. It should come off as bad, but it works in this film. Believe it or not, in the book, she actually ends up with the guy. That's the very last part of the book is her naked in bed with him. You know what I got off that scene? And again, I think that the scene was used to inspire was back to the X-Files. I already said I thought that Clarice is the proto-Scully. I think these bug guys are the lone gunmen. (laughs) I can see it. But then Clarice figures it out on her own through the covets what he sees. Which is great. I always am impressed by movies that invite us to figure it out. I mean, it's one thing to have somebody figure out a mystery and tell you who done it. Here, we're really participating at this point when she's figuring it oh, out. Hold, hold on. You're saying we're participating? That we're figuring that out? Absolutely. When she's, yeah. I'm siding with Jacob. Let me state my case here, Stuart. Okay, I get that when covet, first principles covet. You know, you covet what you see. I got that. Okay, Buffalo Bill is in the same area that his first victim was, that that was someone that he would have seen a lot. I connected that right with Clarice. I'm with you there. But then when she finds out that he took over Mrs. Lipton's home, like, that's coincidence. That was like, she just happened to go, oh, here's this person that the first victim used to work for. Let me go see if she knows anything. There's no detective work there. It's pure coincidence. Well, what I'm really talking about is when she goes through Frederica's things and we're seeing the connections between the other victims and the suit. I mean, this is where the part of the movie, they've rearranged it from the book. In the book, it's revealed early he's making a women's suit. But this is really how she figures out what he's doing with the flesh that's being stripped up. The men don't have any clue. They've gone through all her things. They've seen the dress. It didn't mean anything to them. It took Clarice to figure all of that out. A cat. You know, there's a cat every time that there's a victim. I just feel like there's a lot of things that are coming back. The butterfly wallpaper that's in the room. A lot of things are all coming together in these scenes when she's walking through the house. The river outside. We're seeing what he saw and what's been inspiring him and and what he's used to create his identity all around us. So he decided to use the moths because she had butterfly wallpaper? I, I, you know, I... (laughs) You want me to write a dissertation about this? I could, but I'm not going to. We'll leave it to some other college graduate. (laughs) My thing is, I would disagree with you that we're figuring out with her, because we don't know the order of the kills. We don't know a lot of the details about the kills until the scene when they start really spelling it out. This is all information consumption. Clarice is feeding the audience this news. I felt involved. I actually felt engaged with the way that the story is unfolding at this point. It is. It's mysterious. We're on the cusp of almost understanding it and yet not quite. And then Crawford's ahead of her and, oh, they're already got the boys and we're going to do this. Don't worry about it. Just sit it out. We won't forget about you as the signal gets to get disconnected and you know that he will. These are important moments here. And that being alone with Jody's trying to make everything sync up is a great place to be at this point. It's where we're at. It's where she's at. I'm with you until she goes to Mrs. Lipman's house. Then it's just coincidence. And you get this shot of Crawford when he realizes that they're at the wrong house. He's like, Clarice! Like, does he know that she's going to magically run into him? Like, what was the point of that shot? Like, And the whole fake out of the FBI being at the wrong door, the very first time I saw this, I knew that that doorbell ringing wasn't the one the FBI were ringing. 
I agree with you. They didn't have me yet. They got me with Hopkins getting away mm-hmm. and being the guy on the floor. That I never saw coming. But you're right. At this point, we're on to them. It's taking too long. There's no way that these 30 guys with guns have the right lead. There's just no way that the movie can end satisfyingly knowing that 30 guys are going to take out this butterfly dude. <laughs> so we know what's going to happen. That said, I don't know if I quite made the jump that it was going to be Jodie Foster standing on his porch. But you're right. It it was not a surprise to know that they had the wrong house. And you're right. Watching this movie, I don't think that you could understand what had transpired. The book, there's a lengthy information dump at the very end about how he came to own Lippman's house, that he did some of the alteration work for her. And it shows a body decomposing in a tub in the basement. I, I took that as Mrs. Lippman. Is that who that was? Yes. Okay. Yes. One of the other people that they base the gum character on is Ed Gein. And Ed Gein would dig up bodies of old women and use their skin. And that was sort of his M.O. I think that Lippman died of natural causes. He didn't kill her. He came by that house rightly. He inherited that house. He worked for her legitimately. He inherited the house. He was not skinning women at this time. He was always killing people, but he didn't really start skinning women until very recently, until after he took over the house and had the house to do the job. But yes, that is, we can presume her corpse dug up and in some way meaningful, maybe, who knows, maybe even there's a little strip of Lippman as part of the suit. Maybe she's, maybe she had good curves. (laughs) I do love the Zen shootout. Again, I don't think it reaches the heights of earlier, but with the night vision goggles, I've always loved that with Jodie Foster in the total darkness and gum able to see. I love all the way that this comes together. I mean, I love the big reveal, of course, is the Death Head's moth landing on the knitting spools. And, like, that's how she knows. And the tension as she quickly, like, takes the safety off her gun, like, with a flip of her thumb. And then we cut to his gun sitting on the stove. And the build-up to this is just tremendous. What's going to happen? And, of course, even the victim, she's not just lying down. She's taking proactive measures. She's kidnapped Precious. I love how the victim is like totally counterproductive to this whole thing. She's screaming her calling Clarice a bitch. You yeah. fucking bitch! <laughs> Don't you leave me here! Although I do love that she tries to steal the dog. You know, she's at least a little proactive. She takes the Bichon Frise. I, and I love Precious. Precious is adorable. Yeah, it, it gets him where it hurts, really. I mean, that's that's the one thing that he loves on this earth, like you know, a regular human would love something. I I feel like so much is happening in these last moments. I don't know. I feel like the tension is just as good as the Lecter breakout. It's different. I admit, maybe that was the crescendo. Maybe that was the peak because Lecter is the character we love. But I don't know. I'm still worked up. Even now, watching these scenes, I I feel like it's tremendous storytelling still. I'd say it's tremendous filmmaking, not tremendous storytelling. Because the shots, the decolorization... The putting us in the point of view of gum, all great. But the story, what Jacob's saying is right. In service of story, the pacing is off. And are we to believe that gum, Buffalo Bill, whatever his alias is, is he somewhat infatuated by Clarice? Because I keep wondering, it's that old cliche where you can't just pull the damn trigger and shoot the good guy. Like, he just kind of stares at her, and you see him reach out like he wants to touch her, but doesn't quite do that. Like, it's great seeing Foster, like, stumble around in the dark. That's very gripping filmmaking and and seeing how afraid she is, and it builds up that tension. But why doesn't he just shoot her? Well, that is what he does, but it's important to think about where his head is at here. You know, he's about to do his 
seventh victim, but now Precious is taken from him. And, you know, he's never had a woman fight back. He doesn't even think about women as having that capability. So that's already challenging him. And now there's this woman knocking at his door. He doesn't think much of her either. Oh, you have a gun? Isn't that cute? I mean, he hasn't had to face his bias about women before. And I just don't think that he thinks that she can be a threat to him. I think that he's objectifying her. He's looking at her. He's maybe even thinking about what he could use from her. But I don't think that he really thinks that she's... She's not a size 14, though. No, she's not. You're right. Maybe the hair. He could get a new wig out of that. Yes. She could be an (laughs) eyebrow. (laughs) I really just don't think that he ever thought that he was in danger. So there was no rush. She's just one little girl. And it's when he actually does go to pull the trigger, she hears the cocking and, you know, believe what you will of who would shoot fastest there. But she does have training. Yeah, even that little moment about, you know, check the corners, that's why you're dead. All of her skills are coming into play here. She really earns her badge. She really has become the agent. She deserves to win. And like in Manhunter, when the character is fully transformed into Red Dragon, you know, Tom Noonan is lying in a pool of his blood and it spreads out like dragon wings. I feel like Demi is doing a very similar thing here too with Buffalo Bill, only it's different. He's not getting out of the cocoon. He remains a bug. He's got the goggles on and his hands are knotted. He looks like a little bug just wriggling on the floor. His transformation is defeated. I never saw that, but I guess I can go with that. Look, Go look at it. It's, it's undeniable. It's He is a bug on the ground at the end. And I just want to say also like Manhunter, we had some rock rock and roll music playing at the end. It wasn't as prominent as that film, but it was there in the background playing during this final shootout. Just again, it seems like they almost remade that film here with some of the choices. (laughs) I don't know, guys. There's just nothing negative I can say about this. There are things that are weaker than others. There are a couple things that they've done to speed the action along and, and need to. They couldn't film it just like the book and the book had better solutions perhaps, but I don't know. This is as close to a perfect movie as I may have ever seen. I feel like... What an incredible accomplishment, culminating in one final quid pro quo. Gotta love it. Everyone's, you know, they've deserved this. Now, would he really be able to get a hold of her as she's graduating on the phone? All of that's very convenient. Yes, because he's Lecter. If anyone can, he can. He's Lecter, exactly. They've earned this moment, and we want it. And it's just incredible. One final exchange. You know, I'm not going to come for you. We already suspected as much. She suspected as much. You know, she knew it would be rude for him to eat her. But he confirms that. Asks her that she doesn't do the same, which she does not promise. And then, of course, the most quoted line in the whole movie. I'm having an old friend for dinner. Love it. We've forgotten about Chilton at this point. So how can we not love the fact that it ends here? It's just a great callback to something we wouldn't have thought this is where the story would have taken us, but delight and awe and admiration. I love it. I love how in this last scene, if you ever had any question about Crawford's motivations towards Clarice, the handshake yeah. and the way he like caresses her hand a little bit. Oh, yeah. And there, there was a scene earlier with Lecter where he like strokes her finger. Yeah, they do those things with their hands to communicate yeah. this. Crawford's a little different in the book. He actually is going through a loss. His wife dies, and he learns to relate to Clarice by losing his wife and comes to understand how that impacted her losing her father. It's kind of a tie, you know, like her dad got killed, his wife died. That's the bond. Here, you're right. It feels much more like unrequited love. 
Like, I'm just letting you know I respect you, and I'm going to give you a manly handshake, but there's something else here. Give me a call if you ever change your mind. Yeah, you don't linger on a handshake if it doesn't mean something more than just a handshake. But it's Jodie Foster. She ain't calling you. She's calling Odelia. Who? Her friend, her roommate. You know, that girl, the only one that she liked. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. You're outing Jodie. Uh, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> to be fair, in the commentary, she has a slightly prickly defense of why there is no love story for Clarice in this and said, well, no one would ever ask this in a war movie of a man. And well, well that may be kind of true. There usually is a scene of a guy riding the girl back home in a war movie. I mean, it's usually a part of it, Jody. But, you know, she's all business and that's fine. She's defended women, and the, her role here is protector and savior of the lambs. She's done it. She's done her job. It's an excellent performance, an iconic character, an iconic movie. I can't believe that you guys would not recommend this movie. Well, let's find out. Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Silence of the Lambs? Jacob Stewart, at least for me, the wails of agony, the screams can be silenced. I do recommend Silence of the Lambs. I don't know if I'm quite as infatuated as you are with it, Stuart. I, it, to me, it's not a perfect film. It is a very, very, very good film. It, it deserved to win Best Picture. It's a great film. It didn't have all the artsy stuff that Manhunter had that I, that just drew me and hypnotized me to that film. But this film, it had good writing, it had good acting, and that works just as much for me as all that artsy stuff did. It's a different type of film than Manhunter, but it works even better than that one did. Strong recommend for Silence of the Lambs. Stuart, do you have anything left to say about it? I mean, you've already kind of uh, made love to it on the tape. <laughs> Uh, pretty much, I would just go on to say that I feel like its shadow still carries on to this day. I mean, Manhunter kind of takes the credit as being the first kind of CSI thing. And yeah, William Peterson went on to do CSI. But serial killer movies, serial killer profiles, our whole obsession with the killer. You know, everything that I've been saying, like, that became mass appeal because of Silence of the Lambs. The whole world suddenly loved a cannibal. They did the impossible. You know, before this was sordid stuff that only few people would dare glimpse and take a look at and maybe order the Time Life books or not. But I just don't feel like mass audiences wanted to go there. And now, turn on your TV. It's on every channel. You know, we are in love with the criminal. We are in love with trying to figure out what makes psychopaths tick. And this is it. This is ground zero. Not Manhunter. Not the Red Dragon book. Silence of the Lambs, the movie, and Anthony Hopkins in this role are the reason the culture is what it is today. Highest of recommends. I think you're overstating it a little bit. I mean, A Clockwork Orange came first. So much came before this. To say that all of our infatuation with Why Psycho's Tick boils down to 1991 is reductive. And the reason I can say that so definitively is because the reason I saw this was because I was watching films about how psychos ticked at this time. And this was the most recent that I was watching at that time. As for me, strong, strong recommend. I think I've been clear about how much I love this movie throughout. Again, like Jacob, not as much as Stuart, but I love this film. It has a few pacing issues, but I don't have as big a problem with them as Jacob. I think familiarity with this film. I know what I'm expecting when I sit down to watch it. My only complaint is I'm just not as in love with Jodie Foster's performance in this as the rest of the world appears to be. <laughs> 
which isn't to say she's bad. It's just to say I wasn't ever moved by her. But everybody else in this gives such a great performance, in my opinion, from Chilton to Lecter to Gum, that this movie is just an absolute joy to watch. And as I said, I haven't seen this in about a decade when I watched it for this review. And I want to know why the fuck I didn't watch it more in the past 10 years, because I really should have. <laughs> watching a lot of shit lately. I should have popped in Silence of the Lambs for a refresher. So, yes, a strong, strong recommend for Silence of the Lambs. Yeah, this is absolutely my favorite film of any film we've ever reviewed for now playing. Anything we've ever watched, we'd be better off watching this. And this goes for Poltergeist and Jaws. We'll have to see about Alien. I, I, I you know, we're going to do that series next year with Prometheus coming out. I feel like that's the time to finally get to my seminal childhood favorite. But uh, as an adult, you know, I saw this right on the cusp of adulthood. This is the finest film now I'm playing is ever tackled. I can't think of one that is a better film. Well, there's always Halloween 3. <laughs> yes, that's true. Well, Stuart, Jacob, thank you for joining me for this. And while, Stuart, you said this is the finest film we've ever reviewed, I have a bad feeling this may be the last re- recommend I'm giving this series. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't, I don't agree. I'm greatly anticipating next week. Why? Because I think it'll be so incredible? No, because I only saw Hannibal once in theaters without having read the book and having no clue where where the story was going. And yeah, walking away feeling like, well, like, I just couldn't even see the connection. So it's been 10 years. I'm ready to go back. I can deal with the disappointment, and we're definitely going to see if Julian Moore can do more for you than Jodie Foster. I think there'll be some new faces and familiar faces. I'm greatly looking forward to my opinion about Hannibal. I have no guess what I'm going to think about it, but I will be reviewing the book next week at Books and Nachos. We'll be talking about 10 years later, the reunion of Clarice and Lecter. We knew it was coming. It took a while to get there, but I'm excited to do so. I'm in the same boat. I saw this once opening weekend in theaters, never looked again. And I remember having bad feelings, but I did go and see Red Dragon. So it didn't so turn me on the whole franchise at that point. So we'll see. I just, I got a bad feeling going forward. And I've never seen it. Oh, really? I've never seen this one, and I only know about its reputation, so I'm kind of scared going in. Not the good kind of scared when you would approach a horror movie, but I don't know if I'm going to enjoy this, because I just know so much about the reputation of this film. The goal is not to equal what they've done here. I have no illusions at this point that it will recapture anything about the way I feel about Silence of the Lambs. I think the goal is... Can they get a Manhunter out of this? Can they just give us a good Lecter story? They've given us the best Lecter story, but can they justify it? I don't know. I There are things I remember that are effective about it, and there are things that I remember going, ew, and this is the most anticipated movie in this series. I knew I was going to fawn for Silence of the Lambs. I have no idea what I'm going to say about Hannibal next week. I have no, no clue, guys. We'll see. All right. Well, you can find out next week at nowplayingpodcast.com, and don't forget, if you want want more now playing if you want some what i would call true horror films the exorcist series has all wrapped up but you can still get it through october 31st with your ten dollar donation to now playing it is our thank you for those who donate ten dollars or more between now and october 31st and if you want to donate a little bit more help us out a little bit more we're going to say thank you a little bit more this friday stars our thing retrospective series with the 1950s thing from another world the oldest movie we have ever reviewed on now playing <laughs> black and white mono sound 
cast you've never seen before. But it's probably not even alive. I, I, I'm excited. I, it's rare that we get to go to something like this. I mean, Exorcist was the oldest movie. It was holding the crown just a few weeks ago. But yeah, this will be a new experience for us. I'm really excited to be doing all of them, particularly the John Carpenter. I'll just go ahead and say that right now. Another big childhood favorite. I want to do all three and I'm highly curious. I don't know if I'm optimistic, but intrigued by the idea that we got this new one coming out in mid-October in theaters. Mary Elizabeth Weinstead and a bunch of Norwegians. So all three of them starting this Friday thing from another world. $25 or more. Not only can you get The Exorcist right now and The Thing coming real soon, but for those of you who are thinking, well, I'm not really into that, I'm not into horror, or you may not like The Exorcist, we're going to boil it down. We have been looking at our summer schedule next year. There's Avengers, Batman, all this going on, and it's looking like there is no way we can get Batman to fit without doing what we did with like Final Destination and going two a week. Which, incidentally, means it's really difficult on all the people recording and working on the show. And editing. Yes. Specifically, the editors have it hardest. (laughs) Should I get my violin? (laughs) But here's what we're going to do is we will do the two a week and make Batman for everyone for free next summer. If we meet our donation goal right now, we're not going to say what it is. We're not going to do like a board with a little rising thermometer. I already had my pinky to my mouth so I could say one million (laughs) dollars, but I I guess we're not going to do that now. It is not $1 million. It is below that. But we need you guys. We really need in the second month of this fall drive a good push. If you guys donate, we will do Batman for free for everyone because what you're doing is putting your money where your mouth is and saying you want us to keep doing this. It, it kind of comes down to that. So Batman will be for free for everyone if we hit our donation drive in addition to getting Exorcist and Hannibal right now just for the donors. Yeah, I think it's really important to emphasize that your donations, they just don't get you those bonus podcast but it really helps us throughout the year a lot of expenses so when we say we're going to do batman for free we are but having that time that money all the resources it depends on your donations now hope you can do it but if you can't we will see you back next week for hannibal well Stuart jacob i do wish we could chat longer but i'm having an old friend for dinner bye i regret it came to this world every game must have its ending Remarkable boy, I do admire your courage. I think I'll eat your heart. Thank you for listening to this episode of the now-playing Hannibal Lecter Retrospective Series. That was good. Be sure to head to booksandnachos.com each week as Stuart will be reviewing the original Thomas Harris Hannibal Lecter novels. Oh, I'd love to get you on my couch. And also come back to nowplayingpodcast.com each week as we review another Hannibal Lecter film. So you'll be wanting lots of these little chinwags, I take it. And in the NowPlayingPodcast.com archives, you can find reviews of other films, such as the X-Files films, Final Destination, Inception, Avatar, X-Men, and many more. After all, as your mother tells you, my mother suddenly told me, it is important, she always used to say, always to try new things. And while at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums, where you can discuss these films with other listeners. We could have some fun. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post movie mini-reviews. 
Links to our social media pages are at nowplayingpodcast.com. You're very frank, Larry. I think it would be quite something to know you in private life. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. Quick pro quo. Yes or no? You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Quid pro quo, Doc. You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping in our store, where you can buy Now Playing t-shirts, coffee mugs, mouse pads, and much more. The link to our Cafe Press store is available at our homepage. All good things to those who wait. I've waited, Clarice, but how long can you and old Jackie boy wait? Now Playing's Hannibal Lecter Retrospective Series is edited by Carlos and Arnie. Tedious, very tedious. Credits performed by Jen and Brock. I'd give you full credit, of course. Now Playing is not affiliated with MGM Pictures, Orion Pictures, or the Weinstein Company, and no infringement is intended. Remember what I said. If you can't be polite to our guests, you have to sit at the kiddies' table. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. That doesn't interest me, Doctor. Frankly, it's it's the sort of thing that Migs would say. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2011, all rights reserved. You fly back to school now, little starling. I mean, Christopher Lloyd and Melanie Hopkins, or Melanie Hopkins, <laughs> Chris, <laughs> again, not a expected choice or, 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 well, let me say it again. What is the word I'm looking for? Not a, uh, obvious, obvious, <laughs> <laughs> obviously the word I'm looking for is obvious. Yeah. <laughs> I think that her status as an, as a leading lady was unproven. Can you say that again? I was hearing a weird other voice. You were hearing my stomach growling. Okay. Well, can you <laughs> it say that again? like a voice. <laughs> it sounded like a like a deep voice man. I want father beans. <laughs> um, hold on. Clarice stays focused and uses profiling tools. Lecter taught her to conclude that Buffalo Bill lived near first victim Frederica Bimmel in Beverly. Ugh. I knew I wasn't going to make it through that sentence. Take two. Up until that time, I think of Sigourney Weaver and the Alien films. Sure. And I I don't know, you know, maybe, I don't know, Red Sonja. I, I, there's not <laughs> that many. Do not defend this with Red Sonja. The funniest part is that's where my mind went to was Red Sonja. <laughs> I don't know why. Okay, see? I, I'm not Ooh, wrong. Red Dragon, Red Sonja. Yeah, well. <laughs> The Duomo scene from the Belvedere. Do you guys remember? There's just a passing exchange. We're not talking about Mr. Belvedere. I'm taking it. So no, no. I don't remember. Believe it or not, I know this wasn't the song that they used in this exact moment, but I actually owned Goodbye Horses before I saw this movie. It's just one of those things. I used to like that song, and now there's just <laughs> no way to listen to it without the, It was just like a nice 80s pop song, and now it has become... Uh, the dance of the tucking. Ruined. That's what I always do when I hear it. <laughs> Who wouldn't?
I'd fuck me. <laughs> I'd fuck me so hard. There's so many great lines in this film. So many great lines. In- infinitely quotable. A wonderful. Kingdom, we've talked to you guys about our spring schedule and how it is just packed. And there is just no way we can do everything we want to. You mean summer schedule? Summer schedule or spring schedule? Um, okay. You said spring. Yeah. Uh, it's Isn't it technically spring until ju- ju- June 21st? Yeah. I guess, but all the Hollywood okay. summer starts like yeah, May Hollywood or April. summer <laughs> May first, sometimes yeah. earlier. 